this thing is just oh there I go. Ah. Oh, listen. Like a pop rock inside shell candy. I do not want to eat that. Hey, hey poet, Cody. I like your home. You poet. We have time for one more poem. We have time for one more poem. We have time for one more poem. Apparently, I'm amazing. You didn't know that. Poetry night rings through. I am ready as well. Are you all ready? Yeah. yeah. That is like the least ready I've heard you all day long. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Laura Reed to our stage. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so I'm going to read some poems from my book that came out last year. It's called Instructions for My Mother's Funeral. Um, but my mother is fine. So I, I like to reassure everyone about that at the beginning of the reading. But um, actually, the book has kind of a narrative arc through it. And um, my dad died when I was a kid. So it's really kind of about how, like, early loss haunts a person. Um, and one day, this I'm not going to read this poem, but one day my mom... Um, was talking about, she's kind of obsessed with her funeral. So she was talking about, she's always telling us things to do at the funeral. So we were having dinner at her house and she was using this like meat slicer to cut the ham really thin. And she said, be sure to use the slicer at the funeral because I don't like thick ham. And I was like, okay, well, not going to be there. We're not going to have ham. I don't know why we're talking about your funeral, right? So it was very strange. So I decided to write a poem called Instructions to My Mother's Funeral because she's always giving them to me. But the ham was in there. Now it's not in there. And then it kind of became the book. So that's just a little context. So, But this um, first poem is called, This Time We'll Go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And it's for my brother. You were the one with the body that could balance on a skateboard, dive into a pool, the water closing behind you. And you could hold your breath at the bottom, watch the sunlight shatter on the tile. Your eye marked where to send a ball, and it would hit the backboard, the mitt. You could chart a trajectory from the boy in the doorframe who stood next to me and looked at our mother, not getting out of bed after our father died, his bed made, all the stripes pulled up vertical under the pillow, where his head would never leave another dent. You said, if she dies too, we'll go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, not Wendy's, where we went after the funeral that you spent driving your matchbox cars up and down the lines of wood in the pews, steering the small wheels around the knots underneath the soft polish. You tried to be quiet, but I could hear you making your car noises in your throat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. I don't have to clap. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, I have the pages, but they're all the way down there. Okay, here we go. Okay, I'm going to read a prose poem. Um, and it's, it's after Larry Levis, uh, cause I really like his poetry and I like how he always has like an elegy with something. So this is called Elegy with Carousel and Doorknob. 
I'm on a white horse saddled with bells. Every time I come around, you're farther down, so I must be rising, boring a hole in the wood of the sky. It's a circle for a doorknob, brass like the music. When William Faulkner went into his study, he removed his whole doorknob. You'd have to look in at him through the hole. How does it feel? I still have dimension, like a cloud perforated on the sky. You can see my small hand waving. It's a wing. It could be writing. Faulkner flew the letters at the page like kites. They drifted, then snapped. I can feel the ride ending when the horse slows down. The air blows against me with no message. The knobless door opens. It's your turn. You choose the giraffe, I think because it doesn't move, and you'll be on for a while. And we like it, how its neck stretches up into the tops of the trees and then comes back. Thank you. So there's this um, place in Spokane called the Donut Parade. This poem's called the Donut Parade, and I used to work there a long time ago. And um, it's kind of a sort of an iconic place. It's been there a long, long time, and so people tend to recognize it who've lived in Spokane. So it's called Donut Parade. That was the summer I got up in the middle of the night to squirt raspberry filling and cream into maple bars, a layer of grease crackling and shining around them like a spirit of goodness. I put fresh old fashions on mint green plates and dropped coffee into plastic mugs. I let men pour their old eyes down my hairless legs, lift up their cups for more. They drank acidophilus milk. Their skin was stained paper and they sat inside it, backs against the fat red booths staring at the comics, blank and fierce as fish. Two other girls worked at the donut parade, twins. They had long black hair, innocent and smooth. They had long thin legs, brown from the heavy sun that we caught in the afternoons, feeling the heat push at us and at the lake, as if the water twins and I were all of us the same. They wore their short short and their apron strings hung down like ribbons. At night, we went down inside parks into ditches where the boys dragged kegs of beer. After the red plastic cups, we crossed crawled behind bushes with boys who wanted to kiss us, but in the morning we were back in the kitchen, our fingers thick with sugar. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to read the, a poem from the Chewbacca chapbook that's also in this book. And the Chewbacca chapbook has like this deceptively funny title because it's actually not that funny. And it's like the story, it's the story of a relationship and it's also the story of um, addiction. So this poem sats. I'm just telling you that. So, and it's also, um, the poem's title, it's, it's Watching Oksana and it's about Oksana Bayul. Um, and I think she was in the 92 Olympics. I'm trying to remember. So that's the reference. Watching Oksana. After you leave, I watch Oksana Bayul win the gold in Lillehammer. She lands every axle, her blade chips off sequins of ice. But I keep thinking, this time she'll fall. Like that day last summer when I was running and tripped over the hose, scraped a clean layer of skin from my knee, and you put band-aids on it. We sat here on this couch. It's cold. Last night the door blew off. I'm staying in, watching Oksana position herself for the jump. I wonder if she thinks, I'm jumping, this is it, I can fall, and it will all come to nothing. I don't eat or shower, I'm too busy with Oksana. She's small, like a music box dancer. Even when I'm not watching, I think about her. I can open the box, and there she is in silver. I start to trust her. Sometimes you come to the door, but I don't get up. 
You knock, then shake the building by its shoulders of mailboxes. I call the police. Red and blue lights light up the snow, but still I stay on the couch, my toes in the blankets' holes, my eyes on the television that is off now, but I know she's in there, skating. Okay, this one, um, I'm going to read two more from the book, then I'll read a few others. This one's called For the Bible Tells Me So. Um, my dad, my husband's dad also died when he was young. It's kind of a bond. And his, <laughs> we found these tapes that his dad's voice are on, um, and we didn't, we'd never heard them before. And so we were thinking, and this is going to be really cool, but it was actually kind of weird because the dad didn't sound like the nicest guy. And so it was sort of straight because his dad, I mean, he was really young, so he didn't have a real memory of him. So these tapes are kind of about that experience that was really not what we expected. So it's called For the Bible Tells Me So. On the tape with his voice on it, your father is asking if you think your mother's legs are pretty. You were five. You didn't know what makes a leg pretty, how it should curve out and then taper down to the ankle, how one should cross over the other, the skirt slide up. He laughs when you don't answer, the way adults do. I can hear your breath on the tape. I can see you in the living room with the guilt-framed faces of people named Ludric and Vida, the turquoise chairs and the Zenith TV, your mother with her eyebrows drawn on and her dresses belted, your father with his microphone and innuendo. You and your brother wear robes over your cuffed pajamas. You have crew cuts and long, thin bones. This is the America you were born into, where lines were marker thick between cowboy and Indian, your mother and your father, even you and your brother, who sings loud into the tape. But you, they have to threaten with going to bed early if you won't do it. So your voice comes at us mad across the 40 years. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is your father, dead so long you don't remember his voice even when you hear it. All those years your mom dusted him like that empty vase she kept up on the mantle made of pink depression glass. You're so nice. You don't have to clap so much. You could just not clap. (laughs) Okay, you're nice. Okay. I'm going to read the last one. So, okay. Um, the last poem of the book I added after it was accepted for publication because there's an epigraph in the book. Um, there's two epigraphs. One's from the story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which you might know, right? Yeah. And, um, and then it's kind of weird. And then the other one is from Neil Diamond because one of the only memories I have of my dad is listening to Neil Diamond records and the book kind of features a lot about my dad. So I was like, Neil Diamond has to be in the book. Well, turns out it's really hard to get Neil Diamond to give you permission to get a quote in a book. So after I finally secured the permission, I thought I have to write a poem about that and put it in the book. So I did. So this was like my revenge on Neil Diamond. So it's called, (laughs) it's called trying to contact Neil Diamond. So I'm very good with titles. Okay. I I wanted to just call him or go to his house and get his sequined body out of bed saying, yes, finally I found you. Let's sit on the couch and you'll sing me back to 1976 with your song sung blue and Shiloh. We'll pull the record from its sleeve and lay it on the turntable, lower the needle. My parents will get down on their knees again so they can dance with me and my brother. The sunlight will slant into the room and the dust will swirl inside it 
and it will be the dust from his blue bathrobe. And this is better, I tell Neil, than going back to that house I've driven by for years but never gone up to the door. What if I don't remember? I can't find Neil. I have to get his copyright permission. I have to talk to ASCAP and BMI, who own the rights to his lyrics. I have to call and email and fax. And then I have to send them a check for $200 for two lines from Brooklyn Roads, a song I thought I owned the rights to already. I've walked 45th Avenue from the subway to my father's house, the one with the fat roses his mother grew in the yard behind the gate, their pale faces hanging there open and soft. I could take you right now, Neil. I could show you where once he chased a ball into the street and a car didn't see him, so it hit him and he flew and his arm broke and he crumpled into a pile of clothes. And sometimes this is what I think about when you sing, not about how he really died later after we listened to you in the living room, but about the weight in the air that day, like rain, the sound of the car coming toward him inside the sound of the other cars and the hum of the white ball pulling him into the road. Thank you. So I'm going to read some from the manuscript I'm working on. And it's the manuscript I'm working on is called The Northwest Room because there's a room in the Spokane Public Library that's called that. And I went there one day to do some research. And I was researching my house when I went there. And I and I, I said, my house is really old. It's 100 years old. And maybe you have some records. And the librarian kind of rolled her eyes at me. And she's like, yeah, all the houses are that old. You know, like she was like not impressed. But she wasn't really much help. So then I was like, I'm going to write a poem about you because I'm into revenge right now. So I went home and I wrote a poem. So I wrote a poem about her. And that's the title poem, but I actually didn't bring that one, but that's the title. For some reason, I'm not liking the title poems right now. But then I thought I'm going to write a lot of poems about place because I really like writing about Spokane because I've lived there for a long time and I just feel really deeply rooted there. So so some of these are about place and some are about just being a mom and having raising kids there and so, but they're all, they all kind of come back to the Northwest. But this one's called The Sunshine Family, and it's about these um, dolls that I had when I was little. I don't know if anyone remembers the 1970s really wholesome dolls, as opposed to like Barbie and Ken. They were very wholesome, okay? <laughs> Asexual, okay? So that's what this poem is about, The Sunshine Family. My mother ordered a boy doll from New York because she wanted us to understand anatomy. So my brother held him underwater until he was full and then yanked him up to watch the stream pour from his plastic penis. And I had a girl named Chrissy with red hair and brown eyes like me. I drew cuts on her arms with a Bic pen, then covered them with Band-Aids, pulled her in the wagon to the hospital, her face and body covered with a blanket so all you could see was her hair. I don't know where she went. I was scared when I went with my friends to parties and all the boys crowded around the keg and brought us back cups of beer. I couldn't remember their faces later when I came home and knocked over the vase of flowers I had given my mother and laughed as I knelt in the puddle of dead petals and water and tried to clean it up. My brother saw in my eyes the gravel pit in Cliff Park and tried to hide me from my mother. The Christmas our father died, she bought us the Sunshine family instead of Ken and Barbie, the man with black hair and a sweater vest, clean and smart like our father, the mother blonde and small-breasted in jeans and a bandana, like our mother the Saturday she came down to our rooms to clean and we had to get out of her way. She was angry at us for not keeping things neat the way she taught us. Okay, and this one's called Scarecrow, and I have two sons. Um, they're named Benjamin and Matthew, and when we were naming my son Matthew, this we kind of named him after Matthew Shepard because he was born pretty recently after Matthew Shepard's death, and um, this is kind of about that, so it's called Scarecrow. 
The boy who bent down to tie my son's shoe, who zipped his coat, who opened his granola bar every day of first grade, is moving to Wyoming, state of bison and sunsets, state where two older boys pistol-whipped a third because he was gay, because they could see his collarbone, because his eyes were the color of washed chalkboards, his hair thin as feathers. They hung him on a fence where he died for 18 hours until a cyclist found him, thinking at first he was a scarecrow. It was hot the day your father drove us through Spokane, looking for your name. We bought ice cream cones from a drive through and licked the cold sugar slow, leaned our arms out the windows. We crossed the bridge and the river where boys stay out late, turned to straw under the hard stars. We drove until Matthew fixed itself to you, like death entering his body that night on that fence, until the sky turned pink like Wyoming's. Okay, I'm just going to read a couple more in case you're done with me. Okay, I just, I just want to just read a couple more. Okay, this one's called Emily's Suitcase. It's kind of a strange poem. Um, it's got a lot of different stories that I think are, I'm hoping are coming together. Emily's Suitcase. I can still see that eggplant sitting in your yard after your mother threw it. It sat there for days while she waited for your father to go outside and pick it up and cook it because she wasn't going to. But he didn't, so it stayed in the grass. Once when she was sick, your mother came to your front door at night and your father put her in the car and took her back to the hospital. Did this happen? Her nightgown was white in the darkness like the bodies of the mice born in Emily's suitcase at camp, their small bodies so close together you couldn't tell where each began. We stood over them and stared until another counselor came and carried them away in a paper bag. It was Emily who saw the canoe floating away the night we camped at Micah Bay, and a storm rose up and lightning lit the lake. Someone had been drinking and cut the ropes we'd used to tie the boat, and there it was, the camp's oldest canoe, black and white and named the Phantom, and I stupidly swam out to get it, grabbed it by its gunnels, climbed inside, and brought it back to shore. Tonight it's raining and your mother is getting soaked again on the porch. You can see her legs through the cloth, her mind the white smear of stars out past the city. And you stare, but they're so far, your fingers hurt from wanting to touch them. Okay, so these last two are about my older son, Ben. And um, this one's called douchebag and it's because a girl at school called him douchebag and so he came home and told me that and he didn't really know what it meant so that gave me a reason to write a poem so douchebag here she is in my line at Albertsons, the girl with the voice like a flute and the hair that is part blonde and part brown. When I put on the sunglasses I just bought, she tells me to take off the sticker that says I'm protected from ultraviolet light. Without her, I would have walked away and into the sun proclaiming my safety. I can't believe this is the girl who yesterday called my son a douchebag. I think she probably does not know what one is, has never seen the bag or its tube, imagined the women who used it, some trying to flush out matter before it became matter, others wanting to smell like talc and bathroom windows open in spring. Oh, how they love the voices drifting in when they were under that sheer curtain of water. 
She doesn't know about the closets where it's kept behind stacks of towels, the humidifier, the box fan, the maxi pads, and behind them, the sanitary napkins and belts. But under her shirt, I can see the straps that keep her breasts from shifting, speaking, so I know she knows something, how red threatens like rain. This must be what she meant, cloud of blood, bag of water. She was saying she wants him to suffer. Um, okay, so this one is about um, something that happened a long time ago. So the, the title is August 18th, 1981, um, but it's about a kind of a famous case in Spokane of a car going into the river and these kids were drunk and the two of them drowned. So, um, so this has kind of got that story in it, but it also goes somewhere else. August 18th, 1981. I've never met her before, but we're sitting close to each other, watching our sons play ball, and she asked me where I went to school, if I knew a boy she used to date. I knew his brother. He used to come pick me up when everyone else was asleep and we'd drive and listen to his music and sometimes we'd stop to kiss or he would pull a bag out of his pocket. Once I tried it too and thought the plants looked bigger as if they were plants that grew on a moon. Not our moon, but another moon. White rock where nothing grew but those plants that rose up sudden like scarves you keep pulling from a sleeve. But then they were just our plants and our moon our river. We'd have to pass over on the way home. And there between us was his sister again, always still drowned with the other girl, the car windows closed, and the two boys making it to shore. This is why we love those boys in their wet shadows. At night, I hear the trains whistle, darkness where my sons could slip out. Once, when Ben wouldn't stay in his bed, I hit him. I wanted to shake him by his small shoulders. I wanted his head to flop back and then forward in shock. And I wanted to leave him there on his bed, looking down at his legs as if they weren't his, the hairs on them still soft and blonde. And something between us would be beautifully broken, like now, when he is so tall and the ball loops easily from his long arm into the hoop and his younger brother can't shoot with Ben standing over him. I'll just read one more because it's a love poem. Might be better to end on. Okay, so, and my husband is 10 years older than I am, so this poem is about kind of that 10-year gap, and it's called Apollo 9. Sometimes at night when you fall asleep before me, I think of your hips, arthritic, mended with metal, your bad knees, your legs, my mother once said, were as large as redwoods, and which now can barely carry you into the redwoods where we went last summer, and you leaned your tall body up against one so we could see that even you could not compare. I listen to your soft snoring and think about the 10 years you lived before me, about the bulletin board you made in third grade for Apollo 9, the articles you cut from the paper, black and white photos of the lunar modules, all this before the astronauts floated across the moon, pictures I saw in my history book back when I was your age and it had already happened, their feet touching the white surface only for a moment. These are the years you knew and I didn't, like the years I might live without you. I will sit in our house and know you are not coming home to turn on the television, to make my tea, to tell me when we turn off the lights that you know I'll be able to sleep. 
In college, I could speak French. I knew it so well, I could understand my professors. I could take notes in it, line after line in my cahier de devoir. Now I open my mouth and nothing comes out. But if I hear it again, I will remember the black grate of the elevator. Un café, un cassis, a window open on Boulevard Raspai, the metro, a pocket of leaves. All those years before I knew you, when I thought I loved somebody else. Thanks very much. That's Laura Reed. Give her a hand. Thank you, Laura. I guess. I guess. I guess. I guess. I guess. I guess. We'll hear more. 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 Poetry then. Poetry. I guess we'll bring more poetry. I guess we'll hear more poetry then. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages. So good. Oh. Yeah,